0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open, being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're continuing our study on the life and work of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. Last week I said that every single one of us have this kind of Jesus in our imagination. If you were around here, if you weren't here last week, you can pick up. It's a whole intro to Mark. You can pick it up on on our website and listen to it. But here's the problem. We grew up in America, so that means we've all heard stories. Well, many of us have. I guess not everybody in here grew up in America. But we've all heard stories of Jesus. We've read bits and pieces of things that he did or said. Uh, And what we naturally do is we take those bits and pieces of what we've heard about Jesus and we kind of naturally, this is the way our brain works, our brain takes those pieces and puts them together in our mind and it kind of creates what I called last week was like a patchwork Jesus, right? It's like a quilt, a bunch of different pieces, and then our brain puts them together in our mind. Well, Well, the obvious problem with that is who's to say the Jesus of your mind is the real Jesus, right? The Jesus in your mind... Could very well be a complete recreation based around a few things that you heard about Jesus, but then largely shaped by your own sensibilities, right? Everybody likes to think, you know, like, you know, I'm a pretty generous guy. I'm a lot like Jesus, like that, right? You know, I'm a truth centered guy. I'm a lot like Jesus, like that. You know, I really love the poor and the impoverished and the marginalized. I'm actually a lot like Jesus like that. And we kind of fr- we kind of frame up Jesus where he's kind of a better version of ourselves and he doesn't have his own, uh, it's not really true to who he is. And the problem with that is obviously the Jesus you create in your mind, guess what that Jesus doesn't ever do? He never contradicts you, right? That Jesus of your mind never says, what you 're doing and the pathway you're walking and the direction you're going, uh, the reason you like to be around people like you uh, is your own pride, your own insecurity He doesn't cross you and, and have you and challenge you to do something completely different. So the reality is a Jesus that's made up in your own mind without his own identity, without being the real Jesus, that Jesus doesn't have any power in your life. He can never confront you, he can never challenge you, he can never con- create any change in you because it 's kind of a figment of your imagination so Only the real Jesus has real power to change our lives, to change our community, our church, our missional communities, and ultimately our city. That's why it's so important for us to study the Gospel of Mark. Now, the Gospel of Mark, I talked about it last week, it's the eyewitness testimony to the life and work of Jesus from the Apostle Peter. Okay, it's weird. Mark wrote it down. He's the transcriber. So we call it the Gospel according to Mark, but it's actually Peter's Uh, Eyewitness testimony. And like I said last week, if you want to get to know the real Jesus really fast, Mark is the place to go. Uh, You already see in today's reading of Scripture, immediately Jesus is led out into the wilderness, it said. This is one of 42 times Mark uses the word immediately. It's a fast moving gospel. He wants us to know that things are moving quick. Now, this was written down about 25 to 30 years after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, It's the first of all the gospel um, accounts. It's the shortest of the four gospels. It's the the most intense with the quickest pace. Uh, Oftentimes, Mark doesn't go into a lot of details that the other writers do. We're going to see that today. But Mark wants us to know, really, in no uncertain terms, who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Okay, that's what he wants us to know, who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And this morning, that's what's going to happen. We're going to meet Jesus. Jesus makes his first appearance now. And the gospel of Mark last week was all about preparing the way for the king to come. Preparing the way for Jesus. So we got introduced like back in the day when a king came to town, they would send heralds. And heralds would blow trumpets and heralds would announce the good news, the gospel, that the kingdom, that the king is coming. And last week we got to saw that Jesus was no different. He was a new king coming to town, and it was a herald that went before him. And this herald was John the Baptizer, right? And John the Baptizer, his whole ministry was to prepare the way for the coming king. Now, John the Baptizer, wild, eccentric dude, right? Ate strictly paleo, nothing but locusts and wild honey. He had camel's camel's hair robe, which literally this camel's hair, they would walk camels would rub against bushes and they would they would pull their hair out so people would literally go to the bushes pick the camel hair off weave it together I and mean, then this guy he's got he's got some you know crazy outfit right he's got some crazy outfit this is just an eccentric dude he's a prophet and many scholars say that uh, upwards to 300,000 people came out and got baptized by John 300,000 people right just They just left the towns. They went out into the wilderness to get baptized by this crazy guy. And Jesus says in Luke that John was actually the greatest man to ever be born of a woman. But then John says, and we saw last week, that he is preparing the way for the one to come who he's not even even worthy to lace up his sandals. And that's talking about Jesus. So John, the greatest man to ever be born, and he says he's he's not even worthy enough to lace up Jesus' sandals. So today we get to meet that man he's talking about. We get to meet Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, open up. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 is where we're going to start. If you've got your app on your phone, you can find the Sacred City app and hit Bible, or you can go to the YouVersion Bible app and hit Bible in Mark chapter 1. But I want you to follow along with me because what we want to do at Sacred City is I don't want to preach my own opinions right? there's My opinions aren't going to change you. My opinion, opinions won't shape you. My opinions won't have any power in your life, but the Word of God does. So, And I also want to teach you how to study the Bible. So as we're going through it together, hopefully we can help, I can help you do that. All right, 1, verse 9. and you there? Say there. There we go. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, now, boom. This scripture tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth. If you know anything about Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem, but then he was raised in Mary and Joseph's hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth was a small little village in Jesus' day. It was isolated from any major roads, excuse me, and it was 70 miles north of Jerusalem. It most likely had a population between three and 500 people, okay? So think about that three and 500 people, very small village. Uh, In the Gospel of John, when this guy named Nathaniel heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, his first reaction was, does anything good come from Nazareth, right? So Nazareth does not have this great reputation. It's a little podunk town on the outskirts of town, not even a major intersection in the town. Growing up in Nazareth was probably a lot like growing up in Sheraton, Iowa. Can anything good come from Sheraton, Iowa? Well, Ben Mosbeck has, so I guess so, right? So to, the add, to the, add to the list that we made of Jesus last week, Jesus, one of the most influential men, you look up who the most influential men in all of history have been on the human race, Jesus is gonna to be top three in every list you find. So to add to the list we talked about last year, never owning a home, never traveling more than 100 miles from his own hometown, never having a wife, never having any kids, I mean, he, didn't, he had a job up until he was 30. He was a carpenter for his dad. Like this guy, he wasn't very, uh, he didn't have a lot of stuff going for him. Well, not only that, but he was also raised in the backwoods, right? He was raised in, in obscurity. And his whole life was lived in obscurity. Jesus, 30 years of his life. Right now where we meet Jesus, he's about 30 years old, okay? So the first 30 years of his life is lived in obscurity, okay? Nobody knows about him. He doesn't tweet, right? no Facebook. He's out in the woods. Nobody's even heard of him but his own family and a few of his friends. And today we see Jesus leave that obscure village in Galilee and go out into the desert to meet with John, the baptizer, to be baptized. Now, this event is going to mark the beginning of Jesus' three-year ministry. Okay? That's all he did. Jesus lived for 30 years, didn't do too much miraculous that we know of. And then he had three years of ministry. And most of what you know about Jesus is because of his three years of ministry, less than one presidential term. And today we see this Jesus begin his ministry. But just what's going on? He goes out to the wilderness to be baptized by John. Now, if you remember from last week, what was baptism about? John's baptism was one of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well... If, you've got, if you're thinking theologically here, th- there should be a problem posed to us right now. If John's baptism is one of repentance of sins, right? People were going out to John to be washed from the stains and the guilt of their sins. They would go in the water and be cleansed of their sins. Then why would Jesus want to go be baptized? See, don't we have a quandary here? Mark has already told us in verse 1 that this Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that's been promised, the king that's coming. If he's the son of God, why would Jesus need to be baptized by John? Think about that. In fact, in Matthew, right, John says, Jesus, I I can't do this. I need to be baptized by you. I can't baptize you, Jesus. i got to be baptized by, by you. But Jesus says, no, no, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So he's basically saying this is God's will. This is the way the Father wants it to happen. I'm going to come to you to be baptized. So Jesus gets baptized by John. What's interesting to me is that Jesus, the Son of God, a man who has never sinned, who's the most holy and pure man to ever live, he goes out into the wilderness. He wades out into the same dirty water where 300,000 sinners have been washed in, and he lets John, another sinner, dunk him under and baptize him. Jesus, the spotless one, goes out to be dunked by a sinner. Now, in 2 Kings 5, this man named Naaman he gets leprosy, okay, and leprosy, if you ever, it's, just, it's really a bad bad thing, right? It's really nasty. Your skin gets white, starts to fall off, and he gets leprosy, and, 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 and his servant says, hey, go to the man, uh, go to the prophet of Israel, and he's going to tell you what to do. So Naaman gets leprosy. He goes out to this prophet. This prophet says, okay, here you, all, you, all you have to do is go to the Jordan River, Same river, John's baptizing you. Go to the Jordan River, dunk yourself three times, you're going to be healed. Naaman flips his lid. Naaman, who's a high-ranking official, he says, that nasty water, the Jordan River, there's so many cleaner water, so much more, you know, pure water, so much better water, fresher water. I'm not going to that nasty river Jordan and going to dunk myself three times. That's disgusting. So he has this sense, sense about him, the sensibility that that's disgusting. I'm not going to go in there. I'm better than that water. Well, eventually, he succumbs to it. He goes, he dunks himself, he gets clean. But Jesus, the one who's absolutely pure. So think about this. Naaman, he's, he's dirty, right? He's got a sickness. He's, his flesh is tainted. Many people would be repulsed by him when they say, go dunk yourself in the Jordan. Oh, never. Nasty water, Right? But Jesus, the one who's pure and clean and right and holy, when the Father says, go, let this man baptize you in the sins of all these people, Jesus says, okay. For Jesus, for me, when I'm thinking about this, for Jesus, this is almost a reverse baptism. Right? Sinners go to be clean. Jesus is not a sinner. Jesus is clean. But he's going to be immersed in the sins of his people. In fact, this scene gives us almost everything we need to know about Jesus and what he came to do, the beginning of his ministry. He was the son of God, but he didn't come to set up a kingdom on this earth like all other kings have. This was an upside-down kingdom. It would, begin, it would not begin in the halls of power, but out in the wilderness, that Jesus inaugurates his kingdom in solidarity with sinful, suffering people. Those who are dirty who need to be washed. Jesus goes out, and he meets them. He is clean, who needs to be made dirty. The people are dirty. They need to be made clean. Jesus is clean. He needs to be made dirty to be like his sinful people. Scholars say that this was Jesus' priestly inauguration of his ministry. In the Old Testament, priests were... um, They would be baptized into their role as the intermediary between God and man. They would be the ones that would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. They would meet with God on behalf of the people. Well, Jesus now is getting baptized into this role as the priest. So last week we saw he's the king. This week we get to see him being baptized as our priest. Jesus is now mankind's middleman. He was our new representative Before God. One commentator said that Jesus now is all Israel, all the history of Israel reduced down to one. Where everyone else has failed to be our representative. Adam failed in the garden. God says, If you love me, don't eat of that tree. Adam failed since then. All Israel has failed. That Noah failed. Abraham failed. Moses failed. David failed. All the kings of Israel failed. Well, where everybody else failed, Jesus is going to step in. And Jesus is going to be our new representative. Here at Jesus' baptism, we get to see a new man. A king who is also a priest. A king who doesn't stay up on his lofty throne and bark orders, but a king who leaves his comfort and who goes out into the wilderness to identify with sinners. A king who's willing to get dirty. Like the Father, God before Him, who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty in creation, that He and God in creation in Genesis one, He speaks all everything into creation. But when He wants to make man, He reaches down into the dirt and He takes the dirt and He forms the human body, and then He breathes into it the Spirit. Like the father before him, who wasn't willing to, or wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty in creation, Jesus is not afraid to get himself dirty, immersed in the sins of these sinful lost people. What happens next is just outstanding. Look at verse 10. And when he, Jesus, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now this is a monumental moment in history. We're going to see three things that are going on here. There's so much going on here. Mark has written this with an amazing economy of style. There's so much packed in a few verses. Like I said last week, this is the moonshine gospel, man right? It's quick. It's going to hit you fast. It's meant to hit us hard and fast, but let's look at, I'm going to look at three things that make this moment an absolute game changer for Jesus, for the people, for us, for mankind, for history, okay? Three things. I'm to, for those of you taking notes, let me write. Number one, the heavens open. Number two, the spirit fills. Number three, a voice speaks, okay? Number one, the heavens open. Two, the spirit fills. And three, a voice speaks. First, the heavens open. Jesus is baptized, and it says, that the heavens are torn open in verse 10. T- that's a violent wrenching. That's a violent, just, a, a just absolutely being rent asunder, being rent open. It's, it's a very violent term. This man in this moment is the beginning of a brand new epoch. In Isaiah, the Old Testament, 64.1, the prophet says this. Oh, he's speaking to God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Here at the baptism of Jesus, that prophecy is being fulfilled. The heavens are being wrenched and ripped apart and opened. Now, for many of us, what does that mean? For many of us, we live our lives like the heavens are closed to us. There's another guy in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. His name was Jacob. And Jacob, if you were with us for our series and through Genesis, uh, we come to love Jacob because Jacob is so much like us. But Jacob was a man who lived like the heavens were closed to him. He was a man who was deeply damaged by uh, the sins of his father. He was a twin. And Scripture speaks plainly that his father loved his brother more than he loved Jacob that Jacob was chosen by God, but Jacob had this hole in his soul, this kind of wound from his father that he tried to use everything else in his life to fill this wound, to fill this gap, to fill this hole. So Jacob was a schemer from day one. Jacob tried to take things that weren't his, a birthright that wasn't his. He stole from his brother. I mean, he he, he ended up getting schemed by another man, Laban. Uh, he had to work seven years for his wife. He got He got ripped off on that deal, and he was given the kind of the ugly sister, right? Then he said, all right, I'll work another seven years. Ended up working 14 years for his wife, and his whole life was just characterized by this vacuum, this black hole in his soul that would just suck everything in it. No matter how much wealth he got, it was never enough. No matter how much affection he got, it was never enough. He could never fill this hole that was like damaged from his father. And, it, and he, the heavens were closed to him. One time he even had a dream that the heavens were open. And it was kind of an eye, eye-opening thing, but it didn't really change his life very much until late in life he met the God who opens the heavens. Now, for many of us, We live like that. We live like the heavens are closed to us. We live like Jacob. We don't feel like we're good enough. We don't feel like we have an audience with God. God won't speak to us. We can't hear him. Maybe I've done something that, in a sense, I feel like that whatever I've done has closed the heavens to me. And what happens is when we live like that is we'll use, see, you can't, get rid of this vacuum. You can't get rid of this black hole. So what you're going to, how you're going to live your life is you're going to use everything else in your life to try to fill that vacuum. If the heavens are closed to you, you're going to use everything else to try to open up heaven for you, to open up happiness and peace and joy and fulfillment in your life. So what happens is money isn't just money. Money is is now what opens the heavens for you. So now the more money I have, the happier I'm going to be, the more vacations I can take, the better clothes I can wear, the better uh, house I can buy, etc., etc., etc. Money isn't just money, a tool that could be used for the glory of God and to, for our good. Money now becomes what opens the heavens, what gives me my satisfaction, what builds an identity for me. Sex isn't just sex. Now sex is what opens the heavens. Sex is ultimate fulfillment. Sex is where you, the greatest joy in all life. Sex is the end. Now I just need, that's what it is. It, it becomes kind of like my God, the thing that opens heavens for me. This can, you just go right down, our workplace, our job, right? It's not just a job anymore. Now it's what opened, it. it's what's gonna fill the hole. It's what's gonna open the heavens. It's what's gonna give me ultimate satisfaction. See, the, the thing is, every human, Because the Bible says, Scripture says, that you are made in the image of God. Every human has this vacuum. Every human longs for transcendence, something that's going to go on, something bigger than this tangible world that we see around us. We all long for it. But if the heavens feel closed to us, we feel disconnected from God, we're going to try to use everything else our hands can grab to fill that hole. I want you to listen to this um, 17th century mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal. What else does this craving and this helplessness that, that we feel inside, right? right uh, if you ever drank really good whiskey, right? Uh, why do I keep using this illustration? I don't know. Okay. Then you know you want more of that really good whiskey, right? If you've ever ate a really great donut, you know one donut will not suffice right? There's this, now if you've ever been in love, you know you want more of that. How much love is enough, (laughs) right? We have this, we have this hole that it's always more, it's always more, it's always more, right? So that's what he's talking about. What else is this craving and this helplessness? Proclaim, but that, listen, there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. So he's saying the reason we're longing for more and we're longing for transcendence and we're never quite happy, but we always think something else will make us happy and we always want to be a little bit more happy is because there's a memory trace in our soul and in our mind of a time where we once were fulfilled and we once were happy at the creation. Okay, listen. This man tries to, in vain, to fill with everything around him. Seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. That st- statement is brilliant. I'm going to read it again. Seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. What does that mean? I've got $1,000 in the bank. I'm not happy, so I need to find something out. What else? I need to find another 1000 a 10000 $100,000. i am going to seek things that are not because I'm not happy with, with what is. Okay? This marriage isn't making me happy. I'll go find another wife to make me happy. That's... Th- Isn't that always the lie, right? The grass is greener on the other side, type of thing. Listen, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God Himself. So He's saying you have the vacuum in your soul, guess how big it is? God sized. So no matter what you put there, it's going to fall into the vacuum. It's going to get sucked in and consumed, and it won't fill the hole. Why? Because it's built for God Himself. Saint Augustine said, "Our hearts were, that we're made for Thee, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee." See in Jesus, right now here, this is what we see. The heavens. Many of us were born sinful. We're born sinners. That we've got this memory trace. Where things were once good, we, we kind of hope that they're gonna be good again. We've all been made in the image of God, we've been made for transcendence, but because of sin, not just our sin, but sin before us, that we're born sinners, we're kind of bent in on ourselves, we live our lives like the heavens are closed to us. We say, I, I don't, sometimes we just say, I don't have time for you. I don't have time for you. The heavens are closed to me. You're not answering me. You're not doing things the way I want. So, you know what? I'm gonna go to other things to try to fill this hole. We live like the heavens are closed to us. Well, here at the baptism of Jesus, we see a brand new epoch. We see something miraculous that's, that's changed the game for all humanity. We see the heavens torn open. That in Jesus, access to God has been granted. These same words, this is nuts, these same words will be used later at Jesus' crucifixion. When in uh, ancient Israel, or ancient, uh, so they had the temple, right, where sacrifices were made, and they had this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the, the, the inner courts. Okay, only the priest could go behind the Holy of Holies. That's where God's presence dwelled. Now listen to this. There was a curtain that separated them. We've heard about this curtain, right? When we hear about the curtain, we usually think about this like little curtains over here. Oh, nice. That's a nice little curtain. And then when Jesus died and he he was crucified, the the, the curtain was torn in two. Well, what we don't know about that curtain, that curtain was four inches thick. That curtain, to be opened and closed, you had to hook horses to it, and the horses had to open it. Okay? And this same word where the heavens are torn open is the same word used when Jesus died and he's crucified and the curtain is torn asunder. The curtain is torn open, signali- signifying that God's presence is now open. That there is no more divide, that there is no more middle man where we have to go to a priest and a priest has to make sacrifices for us. That now the heavens truly are open and our souls can be satisfied that we can drink deeply from God himself. Jesus has indeed granted access to God through his death and resurrection, that he's the true priest that brings his people into the presence of God. So right away, Jesus, his ministry begins, it's inaugurated, pointed to what he's ultimately going to do by the heavens being opened. The black hole in your soul can be filled by God because Jesus has opened the heavens. First thing we see, the heavens are open. Secondly, we see the Spirit fill Jesus. Now, our text here says the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Now, Mark's way of writing is just, I just think it's brilliant. Because we have this violent, wrenching of the heavens, this torn open, heavens are open, and then what are we, we're expecting lightning and thunder and beam me up Scotty. I mean, we're expecting something huge. But what we get is, a dove, right? A dove. Now, it's not really a dove, right? This is kind of taking us all the way back to Genesis 1 again, where God, uh, before, before he's, he speaks creation, uh, brings light out of darkness, right? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The Hebrew there is actually fluttering. So the Spirit is fluttering over the waters. As, as Jesus is uh, getting ready to speak and the Father is getting ready to speak, doesn't mean that the spirit was an actual dove it just means that he fluttered like a dove he floated like a dove he moved like a dove so we see the spirit fall like that and what we need to know here is the greek word for upon him is actually better translated into him okay so this isn't just like an anointing where something is coming upon jesus this is actually something brand new where the holy spirit is coming into jesus like in its own, it's it's like visual Okay, the spirit fluttering upon Jesus going into him. That the heavens have opened and the spirit of God is now filling Jesus to accomplish his ministry. Like Jesus wasn't Superman. He needed the spirit of God to accomplish his ministry, to fulfill what God had called him to do. And now lastly, we see or we hear, we see a voice speak. So we've got the heavens open. The spirit fill Jesus. And then lastly, a voice speaks. Hear it, Jesus baptism. God the Father audibly speaks to Jesus. Now this is interesting for several reasons. One, Mark is showing us that just like in the beginning of creation, where the Father, Son, and Spirit were present, Father, he's speaking. This Jesus, it says was the Word of God, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. So at this beginning, this new epoch, this new moment in mankind's history, really the beginning of redemption, this new season, redemption, just like creation, is going to take the whole trinity of God. Now, if you want to talk about the trinity, uh, I'm not going to do it much today. I'm just going to tell you. It will blow your mind, right? God is one, and yet in the one God, he exists, co-eternal, three in one, three persons in one God right? Do you get that? No, I really don't, okay? But this is what it does mean. It means that God himself is a community, a community of love. No other God in the history of mankind is a community in and of himself. So that means love is not inherent in any other God but ours, because any other God can demand worship, any other, but he can't, uh, if he exists all by himself, he's not, he can't love, right? There's nothing to love, so how could he love? But our God, because he exists tri-personally, he can. He is love himself. But, so I'm not going to go too much into the Trinity, but what's important here, you, hear, you see the spirit present, the son's present, the father is speaking, this is the moment where he's inaugurating his ministry, but I want, what I want to kind of dwell down on and dig down into is what the father says. Look what the father says here in verse 10, or verse, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, many of us that live like the heavens are closed, that's what we're longing to hear. When we live like the heavens are closed, we're longing to hear from God, you're good. I love you. You're mine. And the funny thing is, when does God do this? Right? Hey, dads, many of us, hopefully you're a good enough father where you give your son that attaboy, right? Right? But when does that attaboy come? Typically, that attaboy comes after he just pins somebody. Attaboy, he's so much like his dad, like that, right? Or he just, you know, hits a hits a double, hits a triple. Attaboy, attaboy, right? He does something really well, gets great grades. Attaboy, atta girl, right? What's unique here is the father gives the attaboy before Jesus has done any ministry. Jesus has just gotten baptized to begin it, and the Father speaks, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Now, there's some bad theology that goes around. Some people, they teach what's called adoptionism, like Jesus was created by God, and then in this moment, God is adopting him as his his son. That's not what's going on. Jesus was the son from all eternity. What's happening here is this. Picture a father and his son walking down the mall, and if you're a father and, and, the, and you know that sometimes you just look at your son or you just look at your child and there, you know there's no way this kid knows how much you love them. There's no way they get it. And you don't even know why you love them, honestly, half the time. You just, right? And that's what comes on me. I just want to squeeze them, right? Like, so you, you're walking down the mall and for no reason, now your kid knows Right, you say, if you, if you say, hey, I love you, your kid's like, yeah, mom, I know, yeah, dad, I know. Like everybody, they know it, right? But you're walking down the mall, you're holding their hand, and that, that thing just comes over you, right? That love just comes on over you that you just want to pour that love on somebody else. You're so happy, you just want to pour that lo- love on somebody else. So you pick that kid up, and you and you whisper in their ear, I love you, right? And that kid feels the love of a father, right? Or feels the love of a mother, right? Now, is that person getting any new information? No. They're not like, oh, this is the moment I've been waiting for. (laughs) I am now finally a son, right? I am a loved son, finally. I've been working for this my whole life. No. They get no new information, but do they feel the acceptance? Do they feel the love? Do they feel the approval? Is something tangible tangible happening absolutely that's what's going on right now that the father is not becoming the father right now, the son is not becoming the son right now, the son is being hugged by the father, the son is being made aware that God is pleased with him, that he is loved and this is a this is absolutely foundational for what's about to happen, and for us in this room, this is absolutely Uh, critical if you're going to understand Christianity. This scene is critical if you're going to understand Christianity. See, in Christianity, identity, acceptance, approval comes before behavior. God's acceptance and approval must be realized before any good work is to be done, before any ministry is to be done, That we must be completely and totally aware of the Father's love for us or what will happen is we'll be tempted down the road to believe that God's love for us has only come because we've cleaned up our act. Come because we've gotten better and we're sinning less, right? Or we've gotten rid of the big sins in our life. And God now says, oh, finally, you've gotten rid of that addiction to pornography. Now I can finally pick you up and tell you I love you. And then in the back of your mind, you always remember, God loves me because I quit pornography. So if I ever fall back into pornography, if I ever struggle again, God, therefore, his love for me will be gone. And he'll look at me disappointed. Come on, son, get your act together. Many of us do this. We've served our neighbors. So now God is pleased with me. This is nothing short of a thinly veiled legalism under the cover of Christian moralism. When I'm doing well spiritually, God is pleased with me. When I fail, God is displeased. Now, for me personally, I grew up, uh, I was a small kid, uh, and we moved when I was like in third grade, and I got picked on. My mom had this horrible mullet growing off my head, right? So she wouldn't let me cut my hair. It was terrible, right? And I went to this new school, and I felt not good enough. I felt like I didn't fit in. Um, and and I I was shaped by that. I was wounded by that. I didn't really know how to earn my way in, how to be good enough, how to get accepted until when I was in seventh grade, I found the sport of wrestling. Now, like I, I tried football, right? When you're like 70 pounds in junior high, football is not the sport for you, okay? It was awful. I just froze on the sideline is all I did, but I found this sport where they actually put you in front of somebody your own size, and I was like, this is the sport for me, and I learned I could now create an identity. Not only that, there was only one person in front of me stopping me from my identity. So if I could take this guy and bend his will to mine, right? if I could dominate this guy, I now had a new identity where I was strong, I was successful, right? I was a wrestler. And that's what I did for like seven, eight years of my life from that moment on is I kind of, my whole life was built around what I could do and what I could achieve. And when I won, I feel I walk with a swagger. And when I lost, I kept it in my mind over and over and over to motivate me for the next fight, the next battle, so, it, so I wouldn't, I didn't want to feel that way. I didn't want to feel like a failure. I didn't want to feel like I wasn't accepted. I wasn't good enough. I hated it. And then what happened for me is when I became a Christian, this intensity around my, around wrestling, this kind of identity of win and you're successful, work hard and good things will happen to you, this identity just translated and transferred over to Christianity. So then when I was rocking it or when I was, you know, I was really disciplined, I was reading my Bible every day and I was not doing things I shouldn't do and I was being a good little Christian boy, I felt like the father approved of me. I felt like I was getting that attaboy. You come off the mat and smacks, and everybody's excited about it. I felt like when I was doing well spiritually that that God was giving me that attaboy. And so what I do, I threw my life into my work I threw my life into even God's work, and I went to build a big ministry, and I preached as hard as I could preach, and study as much as I could study, and be as good and as religious as possible, and I was just building, 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 and I was getting proud, and proud, and proud, I, and I would look at people that would struggle. I would look at people that couldn't get their act together, and I'm like, what is wrong with you? Here's what you need to do. Wake up an hour early. Read your Bible. That'll fix it. Now, It was all willpower. It was all, this is what you're gonna do and you wanna feel good about yourself, then do good, act good, be good and God will approve of you. My whole life was shaped around this and I didn't even know it. I couldn't even sense it. I could sense there was something wrong that the heavens were closed to me in a sense and this is where I felt it anytime I failed. I remember people looking across the table from me and and saying, why don't you get this? Why can't you be nicer? And I'm like, Be nicer, and that wouldn't work, right? Like wrestlers, you can't go out there and be nice. There ain't no being nice. I'm nice after I pin you, then I'm nice, right? There, it was winning. That was what was driving me. Why can't I be nice? Why couldn't I be calm? Why couldn't I settle down? Why couldn't I accept people where they were? Why couldn't I walk with the weak? Why couldn't I do this? Why couldn't I suffer? Why did anything bad happen to me? I thought God didn't love me anymore. Why? The heavens were closed to me, in a sense. When I failed, I felt like God was pleased. When I show weakness, I felt like God was displeased. Now listen, I love, many people, they always say like, Justin, when you preach grace, sometimes it just sounds like nothing we do matters. I'm kind of like, well, that is kind of like grace, but... This is what I, when I'm teaching grace, that our acceptance comes before our behavior, that our identity comes before we perform for it, this is what I want you to hear. I want you to listen. I love the way a Catholic philosopher and theologian, Peter Kreef, says it. If all of me believes that the Father loves me, if all of me, every, from my head to my toes, believes that the Father loves me, then none of me would ever want to disobey him. If all of me believes the Father loves me, then none of me would want to disobey him. That means if the Father loves me, everything he gives to me is for my good, even when I don't get it, even when it's hard, and it's difficult, and it's suffering, and it's painful. If I believe that he loves me, I know he's shaping it for my good, and he's using it for my good, and this is for my good in the moment. So I would never run from him, right? If I knew he loved me, I would never want to disobey him. I would never run to other things. All of our obedience must flow from the fountain of God's love and acceptance for us. We have to know it down in the deepest parts of who we are that because of Jesus, not because of my behavior, not because of my morality, because of Jesus, the Father loves us and is pleased with us. But you might be asking, okay, I get that, Justin. God was pleased with Jesus. You have, by the the way, you did say he was sinless. That makes sense. The father's happy with Jesus because Jesus is sinless. He's perfect, right? Now, here's the question. How do I know that God is pleased with me? How do I know the father is happy in in me, right? Because I sin every day. How could God be happy with you if you sin every day? How could he be pleased with you if you have looked at pornography? If you have cheated on your spouse? If you are, whatever, whatever, whatever. Great question. So far in our text, we've seen the heavens open, we see the Spirit fill, and now we see, the, and we see the Father speak to Jesus. All of this was to prepare him for what comes next. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately, there's that, te- that ver- word again, the Spirit immediately drove him, that's a violent term. That's not like he's dropping little breadcrumbs and hoping Jesus follows him out in the wilderness, Okay? The spirit comes into Jesus, and it drives him. It motivates him. It moves him out into the wilderness. And there he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, what's going on? Listen to this. I'm going to quote an Old Testament verse to you. Leviticus 16.21. I want you to hear this. This was in my, in my mind this week while I was reading this. And Aaron the priest shall lay both his hands on the head of a live goat, and he will confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, and he will send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. In the Old Testament, this was called the scapegoat. When God would bring when, when the priest would bring sacrifices to, a, to, to God for the, on behalf of the people, there were two goats. One goat was killed. It was to bear the punishment for the sin, that they've rebelled against God. They've chosen to worship other things. So that one would bear the wrath of God, and that goat would literally be slaughtered. But then this other goat, the priest would confess the sins of the people. Like Much like we confess publicly every Sunday, our, confess our sins. The priest would confess these sins and the guilt of these sins and the shame that these sins have caused. And then this goat would be brought out into the wilderness and let go, signifying that not just the guilt, not just the punishment of your sin has been paid for, but the, the, you know, the stain the sin leaves behind, the guilt and the shame that that sin leaves behind. If you've been sinned against by someone, that unforgiveness that festers in your soul, you just can't get it out of your mind. That goat takes that out into the wilderness, signaling that your sins have been taken far from you. The guilt, the shame has been taken out and been removed and cast out. And now Mark is showing us here that Jesus is the true and better scapegoat. Jesus has just been baptized into the dirty, sin-infested waters of the Jordan River And like a sponge, Jesus has taken those sins into himself and away from his people. And the Spirit of God immediately forces him out into the wilderness. This is a sign showing us what Jesus will completely and ultimately do on the cross. That he will bear the punishment for our sins, but he will also be the scapegoat and he will remove the stain and guilt of our sins from us. Theologians call what Jesus did on the cross his passive obedience he was willing to be killed and crucified jesus was willing to go to the cross and let the father crush him but what people many of us fail to realize is we fail to realize the importance of jesus active obedience right now when the spirit comes upon him when the father speaks these loving words of acceptance to him, and the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. Jesus is obedient. He's tempted for 40 days by Satan, okay? 40 days, what's what's up with that? If you read the Old Testament, 40 is is a significant number all throughout the Old Testament, right? You see 40 over and over and over. The Israelites failed the test in the wilderness for 40 years, Right, it rained for, four, like, the number 40, remember when I said, that theologian said that, that Jesus was all Israel, reduced down to one. Listen, every place in the Old Testament where every hero failed, Jesus succeeds. Every temptation that they succumb to in the Old Testament, Jesus passes. He's been tempted like we are, yet remained without sin. And guess what, I doubt very many of us have ever been tempted by Satan. I'm just going to tell you that right if you know anything about satan satan is evil personified satan has his little minions that you know fallen angels that are called demons or, or devils or whatever you want to call them i doubt many of us have ever been tempted by satan himself right he's one he's not everywhere like god is but jesus is under the ultimate temptation by the ultimate tempter and the ultimate evil one and where everyone else failed jesus succeeded think about this Adam was brought into the garden. And, I mean, he was brought into this garden that was perfect, right? And, he let, and through his sin, the Garden of Eden, because of Adam's failure to resist Satan's temptation, the garden becomes the wilderness. The world was now one of wars and violence and pain. But now here, when Jesus begins his ministry, he doesn't come into paradise. Jesus is, he's not a king that enters into the garden. Jesus comes into the wild, Jesus begins his ministry in the wild. Jesus must resist Satan where everyone else has failed. He goes into the wild to do what Adam could not do. And this shows us right away that there is a cosmic battle going on. There is a cosmic battle. So listen, don't... Can you imagine this? This was just... I wonder on the next day, if you ask Jesus, Jesus, how was your day yesterday? Well, in the morning, let me tell you about the morning. I went and got baptized. The heaven was ripped open. The Spirit came into me. And the Father said, I love you, son. I love you very much. The morning was great. But then immediately after that event, I was driven out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by Satan himself. Hmm right? What's this to show us? We should not be surprised when our life and our days even go from assurance and blessing to wilderness and satanic temptation in a flash. And one of the things that Jesus' life should show us here, again, he got the blessing, the identity before he passed the test, right? But I think the blessing was needed before the test so that he could pass the test. If Jesus goes out into the wilderness thinking, all right, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to pass the test. If I pass the test, the Father's going to love me. If I pass the test, I'm going to be a good Christian. If I pass the test, people are going to love me and accept me. I don't think the motivation's there. I don't think he's not tapped into the love of God. But Jesus goes out into the wilderness absolutely convinced that he's accepted and loved by God already. Jesus is driven out into the war zone. And and what we know from other accounts is, and Mark doesn't even really tell us here, is Jesus passed the test. Satan tempted him several times to take his life into his own hands to avoid the cross that's coming. Jesus defeats Satan and refuses to give into temptation, completely trusting the Father's love and approval of him. Jesus obeys God perfectly. Now, there is a weird statement here that I want to mention. It says out in verse 13 that he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, this is an interesting statement that only shows up in Mark, verse 13, that uh, he was with the, animal, the wild animals. That phrase is unique to Mark, and we won't understand it unless we know who Mark was writing this to that Mark was writing this to the Romans, to, to Christians in Rome under the emperor Nero. And at this time that this was written, Christians were literally being covered with the hides of wild animals. They were strapping the hides of wild animals onto Christians, and they were sending them out to fight wild dogs and other beasts in the arena. And these Christians were literally being ripped to shreds by wild animals for sport. Now, I can't imagine much more horrifying than that being ripped apart by wild animals. And obviously what's going to happen is you're going to have this thing in the back of your head. You're a Christian. They're rounding up Christians. They're throwing them out for sport. All you have to do is say one little lie. (laughs) I'm not a Christian. No. And then they leave, and then you go, I'm sorry, Father. You know, I am a Christian, but I didn't want to die today. I think many of us think that. And if we look... Around the world, even right now, where Christians are being gathered up and slaughtered. I think many of us in our gut would go, If that was me, I would just deny him. I would just lie. And what's the big deal? Just lie and say you don't believe in Jesus. Then when he walks away, ask for forgiveness, and then you're good. And this is going on. Some Christians, right? take me, I'm a Christian, I'm going to die, I'm going to meet my Savior. Some Christians, uh, they're, they're bowing down, they're giving up, they're, they're lying. And what can obviously happen is, in that kind of situation, there can be this, well, the really good Christians are going to die. <laughs> and you can kind of create this two-tier system of really strong, powerful Christians and really not, you know, people that deny him. Even though Peter himself, we know, denied him. But what Mark wants these Christians to know, he's writing to these Roman Christians who are struggling with being strapped to wild animals, given given over in the arena. That Jesus suffered too. Jesus was out there where the wild things are. Jesus was out there with the beasts. But in Jesus' suffering, in his temptation, he performed perfectly. He didn't fail the test. So because of Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. Because here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of the gospel. By faith, Jesus' perfect obedience gets imputed, that's a big word, imputed to you. What does that mean? Because Jesus won the battle and perfectly resisted and defeated Satan, not just in the wilderness, but ultimately on the cross, no matter what we are going through, a season of peace, or a season of conflict, whether we're in a country where we can practice our faith or we're in a country where we're being killed by our faith, we can know with certainty that we are right now the beloved children of God because of what Jesus has done for us. This means that right now our identities are as secure as Jesus. They do not rise and fall based on our current religious performance. Think about that. Jesus was not sinful. He took upon the sins of humanity and took them to the cross and died. Now, many of us get that we've been forgiven by God, and we think what that means is, all right, all your past is wiped away. Now be good. And then every time we wake up and we sin and we sin, we we struggle with this in our head. Are we accepted by God still? Uh, Are we forgiven by God still? What's going on? And what we don't know and what many preachers don't preach and what many churches don't talk about is the imputed righteousness of Christ, that absolutely your past has been washed clean, absolutely Christ took your sins and he paid the penalty, so now you're not going to go to hell. That's the penalty of sin. You go to hell. That's the penalty of sin. Okay, that's been paid for. If you trust in Christ, you are no longer going to hell. Great, but what else? Now, by faith, through the grace of God, you have been imputed with the righteousness of God. That means Jesus' perfect standard, his perfect performance has been granted to you. Everything about Jesus has been granted to you. So by faith, when, the, when you go to pray to the Father... The heavens are not closed to you because the heavens are not closed to Jesus. And when I go to the Father, I'm not going in my own standing based on how well I read the Bible that day or how well I treated my kids that day. I stand before God based on the righteousness of Christ. So the heavens are ripped open. The Spirit has been given to me because of Christ. And the Father looks down and says, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. No matter what I did yesterday or the minute before it, because of the righteousness of Christ has been granted to me. Now, when I was in Omaha about a year and a half, or how long was it was, it's been long now, three and a half years ago, I had some men around me praying for me. And I was dealing with this wrestler identity, right? Like this, I think if I do really good, God loves me, but when I don't do good, God's upset with me. And I, I was praying and I kind of visualized in my head Jesus on the cross. And I was really frustrated with him that he would actually do that because that's so weak right? Like, now this might not be you, but this is me, okay? I'm a wrestler. I like, I like winning. Uh, if I'm Jesus, like, on the cross, I shoot laser beams out of my eyes, okay? That's what I do. <laughs> I annihilate everyone and prove that I am God, right? This is so much better in my story. That I think most humans would invent a story like that, right? Who invents a God who goes and dies, right? Goes and gets himself killed. How pathetic, And we guys we need to we need to remember the pathetic nature of Jesus' death. Hanging naked on a cross, people saying, If you're God, come down from there. Call angels, do something. And our God goes and gets himself killed, naked, on a cross. Thieves next to him. It's pathetic. And I'm looking at it, and in this moment, for the first time, and I've been preaching the gospel for about a decade, for the first time, I kind of said, duh, how pathetic. And it kind of shocked me. I was kind of confronted with my own sinfulness, my own repulsion to weakness. And I felt like... Jesus asked me in this moment, and God does not speak to me audibly, okay? He doesn't speak to me audibly. He very rarely even speaks into my mind, all right? Whatever you want to talk about. He speaks primarily when I read the Bible. But in this moment, I felt like he said, lay the wrestler down at the cross. And I kind of, the guys, I kind of like did something. The guy's like, what? I said, I feel like God asked me to lay the wrestler down. And they're like, let's do that. You ready to do that? And I'm like, and I just felt like Alice looking down the rabbit hole. I'm like, ooh, that goes really deep. I walk into a room, and I'm a wrestler. You give me a problem, and I dominate it, right? That's what I do. I confront it head on. You want to talk? Well, we got an issue? Let's talk about it, right? Head on, confrontation. It's good with me. It's fine with me. I like it, right? And for the first time, I said, wait, I don't, and I literally said, and they said, well, what's the problem? And I said, I, this is big, bigger. I can't just do this. It's not like something I can just pull the trigger and do. This, is, this goes deep in who I am as a person, how I get my identity, how I relate to people, how I relate to God. What does it mean for me? And they said, well, I want you to ask God that. So I just kind of closed my eyes and I prayed and I said, Father, if I'm not the wrestler, I'm going to edit this version for you guys. If I'm not the wrestler, then who the heck am I? And he said, in that moment, he said, you're my loved and forgiven son. No, that ain't good enough for me. So I said, <coughs> yeah, I've been preaching that for a decade. I get it. Who am I? And it was as quick as, it was as, quick as this. He said, when you're that, nothing else matters. And it dropped. The penny dropped. Something clicked in my head that released these things, watery things from my eyes. Like, in the, I couldn't get a hold of myself. Have you ever had that? Right? It wasn't like, it was like a cognitive, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm your son. Yeah, I get it. And he said, when you're that, nothing else matters. See, that will fill the gap, right? That will fill the black hole. That's the only approval that will fill it. Your boss's approval won't fill it. It'll just make a bigger space where you need more of it. Your wife's approval won't fill it. Your kid's approval won't fill it. Money won't fill it. Sex won't fill it. Only the approval of God will fill it. And that has only been purchased for you by God. God does not look at your life and go, oh, I'm so pleased with how you sin every day. He looks at your life and goes, I'm so pleased by the work of the son. I'm so pleased by Jesus. Perfect performance on your behalf that you've been given grace by God through faith. And now you are my beloved daughter. And, I can, and now we can daily. And it doesn't happen every day. Okay. One of the reasons we go to the Bible, one of the reasons we pray is because we want God, we want to feel this moment where God picks us up and squeezes us and says, you're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. And it's not based on our own performance. It's not based on how well we're doing. It's based on Christ. This is the gospel. Because of Jesus, the heavens are open to us. The spirit fills us and motivates us for mission. And we are God's beloved children. None of this is dependent upon your willpower or your discipline or your morality. Every bit of redemption or salvation was completed by God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, how would your life be different if you really believe this? If you really believe this, how would your life be different? you still living like Jacob, like the heavens are closed, running around from relationship to relationship, thinking that the next one's finally going to fill you. You go from book to book, thinking, in the next book, it's going to click. In the next book, I'm going to get it. and the next book, finally, this hole is going to be filled. The next degree. The next raise, the next promotion, the next thing, I'm finally going to get it. Chasing the wind. This morning... I'm going to offer you if you're in this room, maybe this is your first time here, maybe you've never heard this before. This is what this is good news. This is good news. What does it mean to become a Christian? Believe it. Believe it. Believe that because of Jesus, you're the lo- you're loved. He paid the price. He's done it. That's what it means to believe it. Will you believe it this morning? Christian Lay your deadly doing down. Lay your striving. Lay your performance. Lay how you measure yourself and you measure your spirituality every day and how good you are. Are you better than this person or not as good as that person? Lay it down and trust Christ for your sanctification. Trust Christ for your righteousness. Trust, trust Christ for your acceptance and your approval. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you were alluding and signifying all these things that Christ would do, that he is the king of all kings, but he's also the priest of all priests. He's the one who can open up the heavens for us. He's the one who can satisfy our deepest longings. He's the one who can heal us from the pains of our sin. He's the one who can empower us for future life together with him. Jesus, you are good. We thank you. And Father, I pray this morning that you would give us all a divine sense, just this opening of the heavens and the spirit filling, and we could hear our own, your own voice in our own souls that we are your beloved children because of the work of Jesus. And Jesus, I know that you gave us something to remember this by. The night that you were betrayed, the night before your death, you sat down with your disciples and you broke bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you gave the cup of wine and you said, this is my blood spilled for you. And you said to take it and eat it in remembrance of you and that's what we want to do this morning. we am going to take your body that you gave it for us. We're going to take your blood that you gave it for us and we ask that you would fill this God-sized hole in us, you would fill this emptiness, you would fill this huge expanse that we try to stuff everything else in our life into, and you would free us to just enjoy those things and use those things, but not try to use those things to build an identity on. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.